Hello, I'm Corey Widmer, lead pastor of Third Church, and welcome to Audio Appendix. This is a occasional podcast that we do when we feel like that uh, a message that was preached on Sunday warranted a deeper dive into a subject. And so I'm really excited this week because on Sunday, this past Sunday, I preached on stewarding our vocations. Um, and if you haven't heard that message yet, you um, can just check out the podcast and the um, just before this one, and you can hear that message. Um, but in that sermon, I mentioned one of my most favorite books called Kingdom Calling um, by Dr. Amy Sherman. And I'm so excited that we get to actually have a conversation with Amy today. Um, so I want to introduce you, Amy Sherman. Say hi, Amy. Hello. It is a delight to be here at Third. Amy, maybe you can just, before we get into the subject of the book, just tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do. Well, I am a transplanted Yankee. I uh, come from outside of Buffalo, New York, but I have been in Virginia since uh, the 1980s, and I went to UVA for my graduate school, and uh, right after that time, uh I was very involved in my church, uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church, and actually had the opportunity to provide some leadership uh, over an urban ministry there called Charlottesville Abundant Life Ministries, and ran that uh, ministry for a number of years, um, and then went on the board, uh, and then sort of slowly transitioned out. And now I what I do is a lot of consulting and um, coaching and helping and training, equipping uh, other congregations and faith-based nonprofits uh, in the work that they are doing in their local communities. Very cool. And you do that through under the direction of the Sagamore Institute That's in right. Indianapolis? That's right. That right. Sagamore is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank, uh, and we cover a lot of different um, subject areas, but I'm kind of our person that is really interested in the intersection of uh, church and society uh, and the role of the church in really flourishing um, its community. Hmm. I first met Amy when I was a student at UVA, and I was a volunteer in Abundant Life Ministry, which was um, a ministry that especially worked with urban youth within Charlottesville, and I met Amy then. And Amy, I was just super impressed by you, and you were kind of a hero of mine, and I would follow you around everywhere, and I wrote a paper about you, and <laughs> so <laughs> it feels really exciting for me to have you here with us, so... Well, it's a, it's a delight. It's a delight. Well, let's get into your book, because I remember when your book first came out, I was really intrigued, because my memory of you and my experience of you was always in inner city ministry, um, community development ministry. And so when I saw, obviously you've published a lot of different books, but when I saw that you had specifically published a book on the subject of work, that was really striking to me and so interesting to me. It in some ways seemed like a departure from where uh, what I was accustomed to hearing you talk about. But I also thought, gosh, that is makes a lot of sense too. Um, so maybe you could just tell us about how you ended up getting interested in the topic of work and vocation. Yeah, I did come into the faith and work conversation through a somewhat unconventional uh, doorway. Like a lot of people have been in marketplace ministry, They've been business people, and they've been wrestling with, gosh, this 
this quote-unquote secular job, how do I marry that to my faith? How do I express my faith through that? That's not the doorway I came through. Um, and really, the experience of running Abundant Life Ministries um, played a significant role. What I realized, Corey, um, unfortunately, several years too late, but at least eventually I did realize it, was that I'd made a pretty big mistake um, in the early years of the ministry because each year when I had the opportunity to sort of stand before the congregation and make my annual, you know, plea for volunteers, I would have my list of what I needed. I needed X number of tutors and Y number of basketball, basketball coaches, and I needed um, computer helpers and uh, people that would help our women's prayer ministry and, and the like. And I would stand there in front of our congregation, and I'd I would sort of look out at what I was really considering to be a thousand or so bodies that hopefully would fill my slots. Your volunteer slots. Looking my for... volu- I, was, I was looking for bodies to fill my slots. And I had been passionate and still am passionate for congregations to engage in ministries that will really make transformational differences in their communities. Um, And I wanted Abundant Life to be a ministry that would really, you know, change systems and that would really uh, not just help people manage their poverty, but actually to escape their poverty. Um, But in order to get that kind of real transformation, what I came to realize was that that was never going to happen if the way we were going about it was was through using the few hours a month or a week that someone has of their volunteer time. Um, one of the ways I like to put it is I had this revelation that it wasn't the best thing for me to ask the bankers at Trinity to come down and be basketball coaches. Probably. The, also, they would probably be bad basketball coaches. <laughs> they, yeah. might, they might be. Bu- they yeah. might be bad basketball but players. You were, we were essentially ignoring what they were best at. Exactly. Ignoring what they spent the great majority of their time doing, and exactly. saying, "Hey, give me a couple of extra hours to tutor a kid." Exactly. Exactly. And it was like, no. And so, I need you, my. What was I need my bankers to. I need my bankers to figure out what are we going to do about payday lending. Mm. Um, that's crushing this community. Um, and so that was really kind of the genesis. It was this notion, and, and I write about Proverbs 11.10 in the book, which is a, a wonderful little pithy statement there. It says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And what I realized was that, that verse was really talking about people in a city like dancing in the streets um, with joy, and that that dancing was elicited or prompted by the fact that the people of God were really bringing about really remarkable, significant change. So if we want to see our churches bringing about that kind of change that elicits um, the down and out dancing in the streets, again, we're not going to accomplish that if people are doing that somehow outside of what they spend most of their time doing, some, somehow outside of their vocational power, the vocational platform, um, and so I thought, gosh, I really need to think about 
how does the faith and work conversation intersect with the Christian community development conversation? Mm. And the outcome was Kingdom Calling. That's beautiful. <laughs> and did you sense that that was an easy transition for most of the folks in the congregation to make at Trinity and other places? I mean, did people, how able have people been able to grasp the message that you're trying to communicate that actually one of the best ways that you can be a disciple of Jesus and be a vessel for his work for the kingdom of God is through your everyday labor. Has that been an a, a, an easy message for people to grasp or have you had to overcome I think it's a lot been I think it's been mixed. Um, on the one hand for a lot of people it's it is they do grasp it and they grasp it joyfully and they grasp it gratefully. Um, they, oh gosh, you're not telling me to coach basketball. You just want me to do my job differently. (laughs) Right, right. Right. And they feel that you are affirming their own ministry Mm. in a way that perhaps they have not felt affirmed in the past. Um, They get excited. Their eyes begin to open to new ways that they themselves can pursue the kingdom of God in and through their daily work. Um, so on the one hand, I would say, yes, a lot of people get it, they grasp it, um, they're joyful about it. Uh, on the other hand, um, there are still people that it, it, it does raise a lot of question marks. There's still sort of a, a sense of, well, gosh, but this is sort of this secular thing I do. And, you know, I'm just kind of a pencil pusher living in cubicle land, and I don't really see how that relates to my mm. faith. Um, and so there's a, a journey that I think people have to go on to, to begin to see the ways in which their work really does truly matter to God, and their work can be such a powerful avenue for the expression of their faith, uh, and not just in words. You know, a lot of people have thought, well, faith and work integration for me at work, I guess that just means I'm supposed to have a Bible study with my coworkers. Mm-hmm. Well, having a Bible study with your coworkers, that's great. Do it. Go for it. Um, but that doesn't but, necessarily but, create more yeah, flourishing systems in the world. Right, right, right. Because faith and work integration isn't just about... Um, you know, our character, it is about that, but it is about the nature of the work itself and the importance of understanding what is it that God is trying to do through the work of engineering, the work of art, the work of fashion and architecture and business Mm. and diplomacy and all these other arenas of life that that we're working in. Right. I think that's pretty remarkable. I mean, for a long time, it did seem like a lot of the faith work conversations orbited mostly around ethics and evangelism, I would say, you know, where using opportunities in your work to share the gospel, um, using opportunities in your work to practice um, integrity and right. good ethics that right. are bearing witness to Jesus, all, all good things. Right. Um, but for a long time, especially within the evangelical world, we've really lacked an understanding that when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, one of the main ways that we can be a part of the answer to that prayer is through our everyday labor. And that's just a huge, a huge thing that if we don't address, absolutely, is an enormous absence from our understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Absolutely. So the, your term vocational stewardship is so interesting. Um, we, we latched onto it because we're in a six-week series on stewardship right now we're, that we call entrusted, that God has entrusted us with precious things that we're called to use for the master's purposes. How'd you come up with that term, vocational 
stewardship? I was thinking about that question when you sent it to me, and I honestly can't remember if I actually coined it or if my friend Ken Myers coined it, Hmm. Um, because I think I did have a conversation with him uh, in the during the couple of years I was working on the book, but I can't quite remember. But the general idea was uh, people are familiar with the concept of financial stewardship, uh, and those who preach it well will say, uh, you know, you're the steward, you're not the owner, it's all God's, everything God, you know, all this money, whatever you have, this is this is God's, and you need to steward it well, and you need to do that with intentionality and with prayerfulness uh, and with a real eye for, you know, what has God in, entrusted to you for the advancement of his kingdom. Well, similarly, all that you have been entrusted in terms of your vocation, the the particular job you have, the doors that God has opened for you in the past, the education, the vocational preparation that you know has been uh, in your background, um, the strength that He gives you every day to get up and go do the work—all of this also is a gift from God. And just as we have to steward our finances, uh, we also need to steward our vocations. Mm. Um, and so. It's one thing to sort of say that, but then it's like, okay, well, what does that mean and what does that look like? So how I define vocational stewardship as the strategic and intentional deployment of all of the dimensions of our vocational power, that is, um, our skills, um, our platform, our networks, et cetera, uh, for the advancement of um, foretastes of the kingdom of God. Um, we have pictures in the Bible of what uh, what true flourishing will be like uh, at the end of time in the fullness of the kingdom of God in the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible tells us that will be um, a world of justice and community and wholeness. It will be a world of peace and security and joy and intimacy with God, a place of beauty, um, and vocational stewardship is when we use our vocational power in ways that offer those around us um, foretastes of, of, of that coming beauty mm. and that coming justice and that coming uh, wholeness. Mm. That's beautiful. Let's, let's talk about how we do that. You mentioned four <clears throat> pathways in your book. And in my sermon on Sunday, I mentioned the first three. So maybe we could just touch briefly on on each of them. The first one you call blooming where you're planted. What do you mean by that? Blooming where you're planted is really about using um, the, the place of calling that you now inhabit. This is the work that you're doing every day. Um, it may be paid work. Um, it may be unpaid work. Um, but it's the it's the place where where you're spending you know most of your time, and it's it's an opportunity for you to think about okay maybe I'm not in the exact perfect job maybe I'm not in my dream job maybe you are, um, but wherever I am right now, how can I be used in the power of the Spirit to bring um, foretaste of the kingdom. And one of the stories I like to tell about that is a young woman uh, who's an architect, and her name is Jill. And she went into architecture. Um, she loved beauty. She loved, you know, that the creativity uh, of that. Her father had been a, a home builder. But also, she, as a believer, 
um, takes very seriously uh, care of the creation. Hmm. And so she deliberately, while she was still a graduate student, she was already thinking about this notion of how her faith and work should should be integrated. And so she actually um, became the first student um, in her School of Architecture in Kansas to be um, LEED certified, L-E-E-D. Mm-hmm. It's a special way of building buildings and, and designing buildings uh, so that they're very environmentally friendly and they're you know energy efficient and they're healthy um, for, for people. And for her, this was a, a, a wonderful way for her to see the connection between her faith uh, and architecture. She wants to build, build design buildings um, and counsel people to build buildings that are good for people and healthy for people and that are good for the planet and that are made of healthy materials and that will be sustainable over time. Um, so to me, she's really bringing these fortes. We know the kingdom, uh, when it comes, there'll be no pollution. There'll be no waste. Everything will be lead certified. certified. <laughs> exactly. In the kingdom of God, uh, in the city in, of heaven. In the kingdom of God. So, so that's how she is bringing those, those fortes. So that's the bloom That's really cool. Uh, pathway. And the second one you call donate your skills. Right. Right. And... Again, this is, I think, one that really anyone in any vocation uh, can, can do. Oftentimes, you know, our occupation and our sense of vocation uh, don't unfortunately align. So, you know, you're called to be an actress, but you're actually a waitress. <laughs> you know, and mm. you're called to be a graphic designer, but you're actually, you know, do, doing something else. Um, so in addition to trying to bloom in the something else that, that, that you're in, um, why not think about the ways that you can use those vocational skills, the thing that you're most those the things that you're most passionate about and that you're really good at, and that perhaps you've been able to uh, receive formal training in? Um, how can you kind of give those away um, through nonprofit organizations, through volunteering uh, at, at your church and the like? And uh, one of the stories of the of the donate pathway that I get a kick out of is a. Uh, uh, I guess because she's a middle-aged woman like me, so her name is Kay, and um, she lives in the Midwest. I can't remember which city, but um, basically, Kay has been in the human um, human resources field. She's been an HR director at big companies for years. Um, she's been a, a headhunter uh, type person. Essentially, she is a woman with a very, very large Rolodex. She has met so many different uh, people and uh, really has a great intuition for people's giftedness and and you know how they can kind of get get plugged in. Well, one day Kay's friend invited her to go to this fundraising banquet for this inner city ministry that Kay had never heard of, and, uh, and she thought, well, that's okay, I'll, I'll go to that. And so she she goes and she hears about this tiny little grassroots urban ministry that basically has been started by all of these ex drug addicts. Um, and they're these amazing people. And the ministry basically is that they go in at night, sometimes in the middle of the night, to scary places in the city. Um, they knock on doors in the crack houses at, you know, two in the morning. And they're just trying to find, 
you know, the folks that are really struggling, and then they're saying, hey, we were, we, through the power of Christ, you know, we've gotten clean and sober, and, you know, we've been able to turn our lives around. We want to help you. We want to introduce you to Jesus. We want to, and so Kay's like, listening. Basically, they're doing, like, crack house interventions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Kay's, Kay's listening to this, and she's totally, you know, affirming it and thinking it's fabulous and loving all these stories and at the same time sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I could never, ever do that. So afterwards, she she goes up after the banquet and she meets the one of the guys that is on, that's on staff and, and she's kind of gushing and she's like, oh, I, you know, gosh, I really admire you for what you do and it's really important and, you know, I wish I could help, but I, mean, I could never do, I'd be too, too scared. I couldn't do that. And he sort of looked at her and, and, uh, and he said, well, you know, I don't necessarily need you to do that. Uh, tell me more about you. And so she's, oh, well, I just, you know. And basically he said, I sure could, I don't know anything about a board of directors. Everyone's telling me I have to like do this thing called board development. I don't know how to do that. Do you know how to do that? Could you help me do that? She's like, now that I could do. Mm. <laughs> so she's been on their board for years. That's really years. cool. Really cool. And through all those, that Rolodex I mentioned, she has been able to connect them with so many different people that, you know, this guy would have never been yeah. able to c- connect using, with. Using her networks yeah. and her platform yeah. to advance Forte's of the yeah. Kingdom. Yeah. So the third pathway is launch your own social enterprise. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah, and I was going to tell you a story about a, another woman um, who's a chef. Um, but then I, then I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, it's a little different. So the story I usually tell is about a female chef who starts a little bistro in a kind of economically distressed neighborhood where her church is is serving, uh, and it's a great story. She's from Pittsburgh, and um, she's really bringing a foretaste of economic hope. I think in that community, she's actually been able to hire a lot of folks uh, in her in her bistro. So that that was the, that was the story I, I often tell. But I'm reading a novel right now by an author I really like, and I thought, you know, there's a way in which Corbin is kind of an uh, an example of the uh, of the third pathway. So Corbin Addison is a guy who went to law school at UVA uh, and was a lawyer, but he's very gifted in writing, and he decided that what he wanted to do was um, write novels about sort of great themes of of social justice. Hmm. And his first novel is called A Walk Across the Sun. And I learned of it because he, uh, I've been involved with something called the International Justice Mission, uh, which is a wonderful Christian human rights ministry that rescues people from uh, modern day slavery. And Corbin uh, went and really saw their work and then wrote his first novel um, as a sort of fictionalized account of some of the kinds of work that they, they do in combating human, human trafficking. And so Corbin hasn't um, actually launched uh, a business the way that the, that the chef I mentioned earlier, but it's, I, I, I see it as kind of this invent pathway because he's creating, I mean, he's now created several books that before they didn't exist. Mm. Uh, and these books themselves have become uh, a, a sort of avenue through which 
he is able to uh, speak uh, about these great questions of, of social justice. And people who read his books, I think, get their imaginations mm-hmm. uh, inflamed in a wonderful way. Probably in a way uh, that reading a book about right, social justice never would, but reading right, a novel. Right, reading a novel really captures it. And, and of course, the success of his books, he's a very, they're very good books. They're very well-written books. They're uh, real page turners. And um, so he, you know, he's on tour and he's always having events. And, and so he's able to speak about these things. And he's, you know, he's channeling... Uh, he's channeling investment uh, into IJM and other, uh, you know, organizations that are tackling these big issues of the mm. day that that the books are uh, about. And so I decided, yeah, you know, actually, I hadn't thought of it before, but Corbin Addison really is sort of an example of Pathway Three as well. It's really cool. Yeah. In my sermon on Sunday, I talked about a group of folks in our church and some other churches who helped create a alternative lending institution called Good Choice, partnered yes. with um, Goodwill, yes. that offers alternative for folks to not go to payday lending institutions, um, but they not only they receive uh, low-interest loans, but also get financial coaching right. to break dependency from yes. some of these high-interest loan example. places. So that would be Absolutely. another cool example of creating something new. Yes. Finally, the fourth pathway, which I didn't mention in the sermon, was participate in your church's targeted initiative. Yes. What does that and mean? So I call that pathway invest. And it's a little more complicated, but the general idea is that um, often our congregations um, will decide that there's a particular calling uh, on them in terms of their outreach. And that calling might be related to a place so there's a sense of we are really called to this particular neighborhood or this particular place. Or it might be that they have a sense of calling to a particular population group or a sense of calling that um, there's an issue that we really want to, um, you know, really put a lot of uh, time and attention and uh, investment uh, in. And the invest pathway is when many people from that congregation who represent all different kinds of of work um, are kind of encouraged um, by church leaders to to point their uh, vocational energies and vocational power kind of all in the same direction towards Mm. that targeted community or that targeted uh, issue. So there's a church down in Huntsville, Alabama that I talk about in the book where theirs was a sort of... uh, a call to a particular neighborhood close by the church, um, uh, an area called Lincoln uh, Mill Village. And the teachers and the homeschoolers um, got involved in volunteering in the local elementary school there, and that was one of the expressions. But then the lawyers were like, well, how could we help out? And so they started providing free legal aid to uh, individuals living in the Lincoln uh, Mill Village area. And then uh, there's quite a few scientists in the congregation because NASA has a, a headquarters or some kind of big um, you know, division there in, in Huntsville. And uh, so this, there was, uh, this is so fun. So the scientists got together and met with the science teachers at the school and to make a long story short, uh, the school had this sort of disused area. I think it was an old gymnasium that had been shut down because of 
you know, lead paint or something. And anyway, a huge renovation project took place and they redid that into a, a, like a living science lab with, wow. you know, a whole solar system replica up on the, up on the uh, uh, roof uh, or up on the, up on the ceiling and uh, aquarium and a terrarium. And so the, you had the, you had the lawyers involved, you had the teachers involved, you had the homeschoolers involved, you had you know, other, other people with educational uh, talents involved, you had the scientists involved. And, and then the business and finance people were like, well, how can we be? And, and so they ended up starting a, uh, something called the Lincoln uh, Mill Village Preservation Corporation. And they began buying up properties that were held by absentee slumlords um, and working to fix those properties up and to try to improve the quality of housing uh, in, that, in that community. And all of this was being done uh, in collaboration with the school, in partnership with uh, residents in the neighborhood, uh, lots of really neat relationships getting built in Bible studies, in prayer groups, in people getting involved in the PTA, in folks being involved mentoring and tutoring children and then getting to know parents. There are a lot of relational connections that were that were happening to the point where eventually uh, the church that started all of this, uh, helped to seed fund a church plant uh, in that community, mm. and so now there's a it's, there's a, a church uh, there called Lincoln Village Church. So that's the that's kind of a good story of Pathway Four. Very cool. One lingering question that a couple of people have raised with me um, is that all this vocational stewardship is very exciting, very <laughs> interesting. But what about so many folks? as we have in our church that don't feel like they have much power or don't feel like they are in a particular platform, don't have anything to steward. We have lots of students. We have stay-at-home parents. We have people who are retired. What do you think it means for folks like that to think about vocational stewardship? Yeah. Yeah, I get that sort of question quite a bit, and I think it's a good one. I think it's important for us to recognize that um, there is always an opportunity to see your work as worship. Um, so no matter what you're doing, whether you're the CEO or whether you're the, uh, you know, the third shift nighttime, uh, you know, cleanup operation, um, whether, whether the work that you do is paid or non-paid, whether it's work that, um, affords you social status and prestige or, or not, um, your work can be worship. Um, and I think that's really important. Uh, secondly, we all have influence. Um, sometimes we think of influence as this thing that only rich people have or only the boss has, uh, only the supervisor has it. But in fact, um, it's, it's very contextually situated. Um, we, have, we have different kinds of influence depending on the situations that, that we're in. And one of the stories I like to tell is about hospitals. Um, you know, one of the lower rung jobs in a hospital, at least from lower rung in the in the sense of how the world views these things, would be the the CNA position, right? Um, but I've spent enough time in hospitals, unfortunately, to know that the person who has a huge amount of influence over the quality of my stay in the hospital is not really the doctor, who you I, probably don't see very I much. Don't hardly see. Uh, not that doctors don't do really important work, but boy, 
if the CNA does not do their work very well, I have a miserable time in the hospital. Mm. But if the CNA is cheerful and kind and attentive and works with excellence, um, the quality of my stay at the hospital, it, it's, it's night and day. Wow. Uh, so, so, so the influence, influence and the impact they have yeah, is, is in some ways disproportionate to yeah. the role that they play. Ex- exactly. So, so it's really important to recognize that, that we all really do have that influence. You know, the stay-at-home parent has, I think, influence, uh, obviously with uh, his or her own family, um, but also within their school, within their neighborhood, um, and, and retirees. Um, it's you know that's not really a biblical word, right? You know, you can kind of search the scriptures. Yeah. Where where's retirement? Don't really don't really don't really see that. Um, so the question is, um, as some friends of mine in in Ohio put it, um, how do we how do we turn the retired into the refired? Mm. Um, so you know what fires you up? Um, maybe it was what you did for many years as a paid position, and now you can really mentor the next generation in that type of work. Um, maybe it's something else. Maybe, you know, you always had job A, but what you're really excited was, you know, passion B. Um, well, now you have the opportunity, uh, you have more time to, to devote to that passion, whether that's art or gardening or whatever it is. Um, but what about, what about thinking how you steward your work avocationally? Uh, to bring about foretastes of the of the kingdom through mm. that work. So I really think that this vocational stewardship thing, yes, it's certainly for people with the nine to five jobs, but it's really for all of us. I love that. And and for students to even think about how it shapes their discernment for their future. I mean, this should be very central to the way that they think about their calling, right? Not just what can make me the most money or what do I feel most excited about, but how my, how has God made me and how might I most contribute to bring about a foretaste of his kingdom yeah, in the world? Absolutely. absolutely. Well, one last question that I have, um, just because I'm a pastor and I'm always interested in how to pastor folks, is are, are there, in all your work and interviews, are there ways um, that you have found that people can stay connected to the Lord in their work, any spiritual practices or disciplines that are particularly helpful so that throughout the workday people can be reminded and stay rooted in Christ from remembering that what they're doing is actually central to their discipleship. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's going to sound trite and familiar, um, but it's so powerful. You know, Jesus talked about abiding in him in John 15. And in that text, he tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think one of the most powerful ways that we integrate our faith in our work is through uh, a, a, a moment by moment, hour by hour, intentional awareness of our functional reliance on the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that I find it helpful to practice that is to remember to pray about everything. So not just praying about the work tasks that feel uncomfortable and are less within my skill set, um, because naturally, you know, when we're desperate, we pray. But also, when I'm actually doing the things that I'm fairly good at or that I have a lot of experience doing, being just as intentional to say, "Boy, you know, yeah, I'm, you know, God's given me some talent in that area, 
But Jesus said that <laughs> apart from him, I could do nothing. Um, so this this constant awareness of our need mm. um, for the Spirit to be working through us uh, in in order for us to be able to do excellent work, I think, is an important discipline. I think another important discipline uh, has to do with our language and how we speak about work and how we speak about our work and others' work. And particularly what I'm speaking about is thinking of our work as worship and as ministry. Um, So often we will say, well, yes, I believe theologically that, you know, everything is God's and there is no sacred secular division. But then we find, you know, then we're telling somebody a story and we're saying, oh, yeah, did you hear about Joe? He left his job in the law firm and he went into ministry. You know, or went into the ministry, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. Was what for twenty years at the law firm? He wasn't doing ministry. It's only now that he's working for Campus Crusade that he's doing ministry. Right. So we have to guard our language and remind ourselves that the work we're doing, whether that's brewing a cup of coffee or, um, you know, looking at slides uh, under a microscope in a in a in a laboratory, uh, this is this is this is ministry. My mentor used to John Stott used to say that the word ministry, at least in the New Testament, is a meaningless word unless it is associated with a descriptive adjective. So medical ministry or media ministry or um, business ministry. And whenever someone would say that to him, oh, so-and-so is going into the ministry, he would say, oh, really? Of which ministry are you speaking? It, <laughs> which is a it is wonderful. A cheeky way to... <laughs> Anyway, that's yeah, great. Think yeah, of our language. Yeah, 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 that's great. And and the other one I would mention, um, you know, we believe that King Jesus is on this grand mission of restoring all things, renewing all things. And I think part of the way that we can really tap into that uh, and, and our, you know, the bit part that we play in that large drama um, is by asking ourselves, okay, well, how is Jesus um, renewing and restoring the field of work that I'm in? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the field of public sanitation, or I'm in the field of education, or I'm in the in, in the field of building, um, you know, houses or repairing cars. Um, you, what? How? How is God's restorative? work, his renewing work, actually getting done through the work of, of my hands. And um, recognizing that, 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 that that's, that's reality. Um, I'll close with this story. Um, my best friend did a teaching recently, and she was, uh, she's a lawyer, and she was talking about faith and work integration, and she had a, a guy from Australia in her class a uh, police officer, and by the end of the week intensive of her class, he was so thankful. He said, "He said, you know, I used to go home every day um, and think, oh, I failed again. I didn't share the gospel with anybody today mm. during my work day. Therefore, I really haven't done good work, and I certainly haven't done kingdom work. And he said, but your class made me realize every day as a police officer you know, I, I have the opportunity to bring safety. I have the opportunity to uh, hopefully advance justice in some way. Um, 
and and that's that's part of God's restorative wow. work. And I mean, that's amazing because his life, entire career life, could be changed forever with that simple adjustment of his understanding of his calling. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, really grateful for your time. And again, just want to commend to everyone that's listening to buy a copy of Amy Sherman's book called Kingdom Calling, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. Amy, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Oh, it was such my pleasure. Thank you, Corey.